The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, we ask, does Starmer stack up? Discuss the fading art of the pantomime dame and learn about how The Spectator's first film critic transformed cinema. First up, in her cover piece for the magazine this week, The Spectator's politics editor, Katie Balls, writes that while Keir Starmer's accession to number 10 seems certain, his agenda is less so. She tries to piece together what a Labour government might look like under Keir Starmer, and she joins me now along with Paul Mason, the journalist who is seeking a Labour seat at the next election. Katie, now that bookmakers are giving Labour a 90% chance of winning the next election, and people in positions of power and influence in politics and business are acting as if Keir Starmer is going to be the next Prime Minister, could you start by giving a summary of the area that you've identified as being the priorities for a future Labour government. Yeah, as you say, I think what's quite funny is if you stopped any person at the moment and said, who do you think is going to be Prime Minister next year? Most would say Keir Starmer. Yeah, he said, what do you think he's going to do? I think you'd get a pause. I think you'd probably also get different answers. And this is not a complete accident by the leader's office. I think Keir Starmer and his team see an opportunity in not giving away too much too soon. So when you speak to those advising Keir Starmer, they say, well, here's the problem. When we put things out, the Tories either steal them, our policies, and you saw that uh, this week with the legal migration curbing plan by the Tories, whereby a suggestion by Labour on the 20% discount rate, that was the, to axe it, they include axing it as part of their five-point plan. But then you have the green spending plan, because the other thing they say is either steal them or they rubbish them for months on end. And if you look at green spending and the 28 billion, that is the thing that the Tories just attack every day if they can. And therefore, they have an incentive, I think, to try and hold back most policies, not just because there's not much money, but holding back most announcements to nearer the election. It means when you're thinking about almost this 90% chance going by the bookies that Keir Starmer is going to be prime minister, actually imagining the first 100 days or even the first five years, there is, I think, a basic structure, but it's not conclusive. It doesn't help that Keir Starmer, so I begin the piece by mentioning Keir Starmer's op-ed in the Sunday Telegraph this weekend, where he talked about uh, admiring Thatcher, um, saying, you know, she delivered significant change. Clearly knowing that would create a backlash with parts of the Labour Party. He's not the first Labour leader to flirt with Thatcher to get attention and to sh- suggest to the right, you know, he is where they are. Um, but you combine that with the fact he once called Jeremy Corbyn his friend, campaigned for him to be in number 10, then changed his mind on that. You think back to when he was running for Labour leader and the fact that he, uh, you know, is talking about we need to preserve freedom of movement. And then just earlier this month, he talked about shockingly high net migration figures. Who is the real Keir Starmer? Which I think adds to more doubt on this. In terms, I suppose, very quickly for listeners to say, what would a Keir Starmer government look like? 
we we know that they're very worried about the economy. I think that as an objective view, if you look at what they're inheriting, you speak to figures to do, close to the shadow treasury and they say they do think they're going to be inheriting probably the worst situation of an incoming government if they win next year. Then you have, of course, this, uh, because of that, it then dictates everything else. So I think very early on, so things like axing the non-DOM status, scrapping, you know, VAT-free status on private schools, that would happen very early on in the Labour leadership because they want to hit the ground running and have some things to point to. And then I think in terms of the growth strategy, they have the planning reform, both in terms of infrastructure, also in terms of houses. They have the New Deal for Working for People, which arguably they say is a growth measure but of course is putting like more limits on businesses and then you have probably most controversially the green spending plan and that is something which Keir Starmer has already had to delay once to later in the first parliament of a Labour government but some say it will actually happen depending on the circumstances so a large part of the growth strategy depends on growth happening in the first place which is a bit chicken and egg. Paul, I'd love to get your thoughts. Do you think uh, it's fair of Katie to, to say that uh, Kistama at the moment doesn't have too much of a uh, agenda that we can see? Or, or should we just expect as the general election approaches that more will become clear? Well, as someone who's still trying to become a Labour candidate at the next election, I've got it pretty well uh, sort of tattooed on, on the inside of my eyelids what the five missions are. And, and I think it's worth re, re, sort of revisiting them. For me, they are this, you know, high growth, clean energy, safe streets, prompt health care and a first class education for your children. I think those are the they're not just aspirations. They are the missions that Labour is asking people to judge them, them on. Now, translating that into a programme for government critically. I mean, I'd ask your listeners to think about a triangle with three three corners. One is fiscal policy, so borrow and spend. Another one is the Liz Truss agenda, tax cuts to, to stimulate entrepreneurial driven growth. And the third corner is industrial strategy, changing the changing the sectoral composition of the UK economy through through regulation. And what what you described there, Katie, is the problem Labour faces. They're not going to go do, down the trust route. They're not going to do um, fiscal expansion through tax cuts. There is limited scope to borrow and spend. And we'll maybe come back to how much of the 28 billion they're going to be able to do. But there is ample scope to do industrial strategy, to do you know, what, what Rachel Reeves calls supply, you know, the new supply side economics. And if you think about what they're planning to do, the government's already gone a little bit of a way towards it in the last two weeks, ripping up the 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 prohibitions on on pylons on transformers on batteries on planning permission for big scale energy projects a lot of what labor has to do is in that corner of the triangle and here's the problem you can in theory spell out a top line commitment like 28 billion a year borrow and spend on clean energy that's fiscal policy it's easy to do and it's what for the past 13 years, governments have been quite focused on. You can't do much of the detailed supply side stuff without having access to the civil service. Because you can do it till you're blue in the face in on a you know on your own spreadsheet, on your own PowerPoint. But until you have access to the realities of what government itself can see and the legal advice and all the rest of it, it is quite limited. And so maybe this I would expect this to change a little bit if they get the access to government talks, if they get the civil service opened up and the civil service is going to say, all right, 
future minister, what do you want to do with the automotive industry? Here's the government's advanced manufacturing plan. What's yours? So that's my kind of defense of the of the, of why you don't see a lot of detail beyond the 28 billion and the various things that, for example, Jonathan Reynolds has been putting out in the last four to six weeks. And actually, Katie, you, you reveal in your piece, don't you, that, that Starmer is expected to ask uh, the Prime Minister for uh, these access talks to the civil service relatively soon um, in the new year. Is this about the sort of time you would expect that to happen, um, given when we think there might be a general election? If anything, they're a little bit behind in the timetable because it's so in flux when the election is going to be. You know, the Institute for Government, for example, said you would do it about a year before. So it'd be around now, not earlier. So someone's saying, why hasn't Keir Starmer requested it? Some say it's because they actually want to get their plans a bit more finalised before they, you know, blow the whistle. And as I say in the piece, you have right now talks going on about the king's speech how you actually transform lots of these policies into a king's speech into a legislative program what would they do early on i think you know whether it's an emergency budget or just separate bills for things like non-dom status the take back control bill that's a really big part when it comes to devolution but you probably need to break that up into various things to make it work the new deal for working people they said first 100 days but that would have to you potentially announce it in the comments and then put out to business consultation I think that's one thing they would look to do and it could get um you know potentially diluted one thing I say in the piece is when it comes to the new deal for working people there's things ending zero hour contracts but there's also a right to disconnect um for example not to speak badly of my editor or, or positively depending on your view but I'm not sure my editor would love the right to disconnect it Katie, suggest it, effectively it's looking at uh, legislation they brought in France in 2017 which means that you know outside of your regular working hours your bosses shouldn't contact you on the weekend for example or message you that's applied to the spectator and see what happens but you know how do some things go out when you go, go and do them so that could all change a bit and then I think but you know even before you get that you have this strange dance at the moment where Labour is having to prepare for government because if they do when they have to hit the ground running and they could be an election pretty soon if you look at what's happening with the Tory party right now but secondly they don't want to be complacent and they're worried about the campaign so you have Morgan McSweeney Keir Starmer's probably most senior aide in charge of the campaign if you see Gray from the civil service really running machinery for government part preparations I think the presumption she will really lead those talks when they start and then you have the Labour manifesto and you have Jonathan Ashworth the shadow cabinet member who is politician probably leading the efforts to try and make sure every policy they want to put in it is bulletproof but I think to what Paul is saying you know it is a sign the fact that you know I think Jeremy Corbyn's I might get the number slightly wrong was 109 pages that 2019 manifesto this time around expect to be a lot slimmer talking about the missions more the vision and probably a lot fewer policies partly because there's not much money and partly because they just think if we do put more out there we're just going to get attacked and I think the other thing and I will stop speaking soon is just when you think about the polling the worry amongst shadow cabinet members which I think does sound a bit ludicrous if you think about the events of the Tories this week and how they seem to be almost risking another civil war but they are worried about the campaign at Shadow Cabinet, they all showed this presentation of graph showing six different countries where there was a really consistent lead and then you hit the short campaign and bam, it goes. Yeah. And one of the things they are concerned about 
is if the narrative is that Labour is going to win a majority of 150, all the media focus is going to be how do you stack up your plans with very little attention to Tory plans, which I think is another reason why they're not planning to put that much in the manifesto. On the subject of changing narratives, Paul, um, there's a, there's a something which Katie gets across in her piece, which is essentially... I suppose you might say the many faces of Keir Starmer, which voters might have to start thinking about quite seriously once a general election campaign starts. We saw in 2020 in the Labour leadership race, Keir Starmer making some very sort of solid left-wing pledges. Doesn't that seem rather far away from the Keir Starmer who praises Margaret Thatcher in an op-ed for The Telegraph? And I just did want to ask, as a left-wing supporter of Keir Starmer, do you think that he went too far in his bid to appeal to disgruntled Tory voters? Well, look, um, I wouldn't have used those words because I come from a town, Lee, in, in, in Greater Manchester, where, you know, Thatcher certainly had an effect. She devastated the town. You know, the, the, on, the, the only entrepreneurship that I remember really being unleashed was the entre- entrepreneurship of crooks who were suddenly able to get away with stuff they couldn't get away with before because uh, the, the, the fabric of society was torn apart. That town voted Tory for the first time ever in 2019. If you were to ask them what Thatcherism did to the town, I think you'd even among Tory voters, you wouldn't get a positive answer. However, I don't have any problem with Labour. You know, if we were, Labour was looking to sort of make, maybe win a 30 seat majority, I'd have a bigger problem. But the, the way is now open with the Conservative Party falling apart in, in office and seeming quite relaxed about doing so. The way is now open for Keir to to think about and you only have to you have to fight what's in front of you You to play the football pitch that is in front of you and the football pitch that's in front of him is of a team that can't play and if you think well you know to continue the football metaphor can we put 11 goals past them what's stopping us let's think about doing so let's get their own supporters on our side and that's i don't have any, any problem saying look you know i i i if I were to walk into a drinks party at the Spectator, I would certainly try and find, you know, common ground for discussion with some of the people I might meet there. And one is, well, you know, we, we want to do something as big as Thatcher did. So I think the idea of try, of saying to Conservatives, if you think the Rwanda plan is complete, you know, batshit, as, as, as cleverly apparently called it, and you don't like it, and you don't like what's happening to your party, think about us. I think that's what he was trying to do. Now, as as for the question of, how far is Starmer travelled? I think there's three things for me in, in in politics: policy, governance, and ethics. And certainly on policy, he's moved. One of the reasons why some of us wanted those ten pledges to be there, it wasn't just to tie Keir Starmer's hands, but to almost define what would a left version of Starmerism be? Because the one thing that cannot be said about those of us who, for example, still would like to uh, renationalize a lot of the key utilities or indeed support the idea of return to free movement you can't say about us that we are beyond the pale you know that, that because if we are then the 10 pledges are beyond the pale you might have moved away from them but they were part of of a legitimate starmerism let's call it so but the other part of it and, and i've seen this close up as someone who was part of the, that leadership campaign is the ethos and the style of governance. And I think you are seeing a maturing of that ethos and that style of governance, in particular with the with the addition of Sue Gray to the team. I've never seen Labour so focused and so realist, to be honest, both at the level of uh, what it can do and what it can't do. And so I, 
I'm pretty happy with it. I think the focus on changing the private sector, you know, restructuring the UK economy, for me, I'm as a left-wing member of the Labour Party, I'm no longer pushing harder on let, let's borrow more and let's spend more. Where I want to see a, a sort of increased realism and radicalism is, OK, what if your initial plan doesn't work? What if the plan to do energy through re-regulating the energy infrastructure isn't working fast enough, then you, I would argue you may have to nationalise the national grid. You may have to take into public ownership certain parts of the energy infrastructure faster than you think. I think that left-right debate is always going to be there in Labour, but I'm not someone who is totally frustrated with the way things are going right now. Mm. Katie, just to end on immigration, if I may, Paul mentioned just there um, that there are a lot of Tory voters who are frustrated with government's failures to make the Rwanda plan come into uh, fruition. And of course, the Westminster news this week has now been uh, dominated by this failure and the resignation of the immigration minister, Robert Jenrick. What have we seen when it comes to a Labour plan on immigration? We know that Keir Starmer has called net migration shockingly high. But what would the Labour Party do about it if in government? So the Labour Party has talked about a returns agreement that quickly ran into trouble because the Tories found some figures in which they said, you know, here is our, you know, here's what a returns agreement would mean, going on a suggestion by a think tank in the EU, huge numbers. And therefore, Kirstama wanted to stop talking about it. They've been talking about bulking up and speeding up the number of asylum claims. And they've been talking about various, you know, working better with Europe. You hear a lot, we'll have better relations. There's nothing too substantial. I think the problem for Rishi Sunak is until he can point to something else, Labour can quite easily get away with this. Katie and Paul, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you. Next up, TV scriptwriter and novelist Gareth Roberts writes in the magazine this week about the fading art of the pantomime dame, and he pleads for us to take the politics out of drag. He joins me now with The Spectator's business editor and occasional pantomime dame, Martin van der Weer. Gareth, what made you think that drag is becoming too politicised? Um, I think I started noticing it mainly in the, the, the terrible years of 2013, 2014, which looking back now is kind of when everything went a bit crazy. Um, and I think at the time, um, you know, around universities, around the world, around all kinds of different cultural areas, we all thought, oh, well, this is just a kind of weird blip. You know, this is like 1968 again. They're all going a bit crazy, but in a couple of years, it'll all have calmed down. But it didn't. It infected everything, and that included drag. So I think what you've got here is you've got two very different traditions, and as always, the American one overpowers the British one. So we have a kind of tradition of um, almost like working men's clubs drag, You know, it's all very spit and sawdust, sloshing beer over the floor, very rough and ready. And often, which people forget, as I mentioned in the article, in heterosexual pubs, you know, I mean, um, you know, my mum and dad used to go to a pub where there was a drag act. That's all kind of forgotten. And then from America, you have this kind of, kind of the Vogue movement, that kind of thing, which is coming from a very different place, which is coming from sort of high fashion end of everything. Those two things sort of don't really mix. 
But I noticed that around that time, around 2013, 14, you did start to get really weird kind of moments when suddenly a drag queen would start talking about sustainability or something. <laughs> um, and, and at first it was very odd because for me, the, the thing about drag and, and about that kind of pub gay culture in Britain in general was that it was all about truth telling, that it was very much of the sort of the school of come off it culture it was like a place where the truth was told where illusions were torn down and suddenly it became a place where people were talking about these bizarre rubbish things like white privilege and um, you know all the usual rubbish that comes from that yes and martin you you have stepped into the pantomime dame shoes many times uh, in recent years i wonder do you agree with gareth's characterization that cross dressing is is losing, or perhaps at risk of losing, at least, its sense of innocent fun, thanks to radical politics. Has that something that you've observed, or is, has, a, has a pantomime so far been protected from this, do you think? Well, happily, in uh, my end of pantomime, it's small town, North Yorkshire pantomime, and I've done it, I think I've done it for six years. I'm resting this year. If I wasn't resting, I wouldn't be able to do this with you because <laughs> I'd be in makeup as we speak. Um, it, it remains, I mean, innocent fun. It's not quite innocent. The thing is, it's a bit naughty. It's naughty fun, but in a deep English tradition. And it's, it, it's deeply understood by the audience from quite a young age, Upward. So the panto that I'm not in, that my chums are doing in my little theatre, is Cinderella this year. <laughs> They've got a, a tremendously butch, he's actually a sort of security manager in real life, big muscular bloke, and his son who has a, a big sort of hipster beard as the ugly sisters. <laughs> it's the weirdest thing you've ever seen. But the audience are completely at home and relaxed with it and with the, the, the smutty joke. So it, it's a lovely joyful thing. I, I, you know, never imagined myself doing it. Wholly unpoliticised. Now, I, I mean, I read Gareth's piece with, with great admiration, really, thinking, God, yes, why do people have to wreck stuff that was just fun before and they have to layer it with not only meaning that it doesn't have, but also entitlement and rights and aggression towards other people who are claiming other sets of rights. So, you know, it's all nonsense. It's just of fun English tradition. I never politicised my, my day monologues except, and I never got sustainability in, except I had a gag about fracking because fracking was quite, quite an issue in my area of Yorkshire. And I said I was, I was totally in favour of fracking because at my age, how else was I going to feel the earth move? Yeah, <laughs> that's great. That's good. It's also a good word, fracking. Uh, but I think, Martin, don't you think the word you hit upon there really is that it is English, it's English fun. And as Gareth says... A lot of the sort of politicization of, of, of drag it comes from America and it comes from a tradition in America which, where, where drag is more sort of oddly tied in with uh, heartfelt ideas of identity rather than just entertainment. And that's the sort of difference, really, isn't it? It's a kind of, um, it, it's a sort of American import. <laughs> yeah, and I think the Americans don't, often don't understand British humour. Uh, the nearest they get to understanding what panto might be is some 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 sort of middle-aged Americans may have seen Benny Hill at some stage, but they would consider him wildly politically unacceptable now. 
And, and I don't think they have an equivalent simple fun form of entertainment. I mean, that's they have to concoct these, these, these strangely elaborate, tortured soul forms of entertainment that, that Gareth so well describes. Hmm. Well, Gareth, I would love to ask your opinion, um, because obviously there, there's, there slightly is a, 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 a blurry line in some areas. So, for example, where do you think there is the line between smutty jokes of the kind you might get uh, in, a, in a pantomime, uh, which children might see, uh, and enjoy, you know, like the fracking joke, which which Martin yeah. just told, which is, you know, it is a, it is a it is a sex joke. When I think most people wouldn't mind their children hearing. And where's the line between that and then the kind of sexualization of drag that uh, that parents do worry about that you read in newspapers? They worry about worry about yeah. drag time story hour or whatever else. I mean, where where is that? Is the, where does that uh, line th- sit? Do you think? I th- I think that that is um, it's the kind of thing where you if you're British and you've been brought up on this stuff, you don't even have to think about it because you're familiar with all those years of, you know, if you're my age, you're familiar with, like, all those Perry and Croft sitcoms, that kind of thing. So you have Are You Being Served, which is like an enormous panto every week. And and, and they did what they used to call self-cleaning jokes. So, you know, all that stuff about, oh, I've left my pussy on the bus or my pussy is climbing the curtains, all that stuff, where... It, you know, to a child, it just means, oh, she's left her cat behind. You know. Um, um, whereas I think when you've got the sort of, you know... Um, I mean, you can even tell by looking at some of the drag queens that go into the drag queen story hour, it's kind of big hair, it's kind of attractive, it's like the big fluttery eyelashes, that kind of thing. Whereas if you look at the pantomime dames, they're, um, they're not in any way meant to be attracted, ever. You know, um, I mean, like Martin, I was an ugly sister many years ago. And the whole joke was I was this huge, galumping 16-year-old boy um, in a dress. Um, so there was no... There was no attempt that this was kind of like my authentic self breaking through or this was empowering or anything like that. So I think the... Um, to answer the question, sorry, getting back to that, that kind of um, American sort of slaying kind of RuPaul's Drag Race kind of humour is just a mile away from um, uh, the sort of humour you would get in a British sitcom, an old British sitcom, or in a panto. Hmm. Yes. Um, yes, the authentic self thing is, is quite interesting, isn't it? It just it does yeah. seem rather alien to, um, in, the, in the context of uh, pantomime drag, at the very least. I mean, Martin, what do, what do you think of the, that authentic, authentic self stuff? Do you do, does, does being a pantomime dame help you be your authentic self? In, in my part of the world, uh, the most revered panto dame is a chap called Beric Kaler, who was the, the dame in York, at the uh, Grand Theatre in York, for about 40 years, and um, is still involved, I think, in a small theatre. Anyway, and he just played it as a bloke in a dress, and that was the joke. There was no sort of feminization of his character. He just put a dress on, he had sort of heavy boots on, and he did the same gags every year, and actually not, not much smut. But whether it's from there to sort of Julian Clary at the Palladium or something, I think I, I placed myself somewhere in between. Certainly, I most certainly would deny it was anything to do with my authentic self, because <laughs> there I am, I, you know, a, a straight man playing what might be, if you analyse it, that this might look like 
a, a very camp man playing a nymphomaniac woman. <laughs> so it's kind of multi-layer. Yeah. But it's, it, it doesn't have any deep psychological meaning. I didn't have to get on the psychiatrist's couch to find the character. I just did what I thought was funny. And when they laughed, I did some more of it. Um, you know, so it it's, defies analysis. It doesn't need analysis. It's not about revealing some inner, inner torture. It, it, it's a piece of lovely... Old English, you know, comedy fun, essentially. And it's very liberating, I'll say that. I mean, it, it is, there is a sort of psychological effect. You put the dress on, you get out there and you start bantering with, <laughs> with the audience. You're in another, you really are in another zone. And it, it, I, I like doing it because it is an extraordinarily liberating piece of stage work, which I, which I liked, you know, simple as that. Gareth and Martin, thank you very much indeed for joining me. And finally, The Spectator's arts editor, Igor Tronny Lalek, writes the arts lead for the magazine this week about Iris Barry, the pioneering Spectator film critic, who he says transformed British cinema. He joins me now. Igor, for listeners who may not be aware, who was Iris Barry? Iris Barry was Britain's first film critic. Um, she was also The Spectator's first film critic. In those columns in 1924, her first column was February 1924, and she was film critic at Spitted for a couple of years, she essentially sets out to kind of invent cinema. I mean, maybe that's too grandiose a claim, but at that time, you know, there were individual films and they were being seen by the mass population, but they were not considered an art. It wasn't considered an art a great, a, a great kind of. There was no understanding of this as an aesthetic body of work that could be kind of thought about and considered an art on a par with theatre or fine art or anything else. And she set out to essentially convince the British public that this was a serious art form that had its own conventions and aims, ambitions. And over the over those two years, and then she moved to the Daily Mail. She essentially kind of invented the idea, the aesthetics, the principles of cinema, yeah. the conventions, everything really. Was was that a bit of a, a struggle to to make that argument? Because you say you said there she was hired as the, the film critic in nineteen twenty four. Uh, but you begin the piece with a quote from nineteen twenty six in which she's ins- insisting that going to the pictures is nothing to be ashamed of. That's two years later. She's still having to make that point. So it sounds like she really was pushing against quite a a locked door completely I mean you know if in polite society going to the cinema you sort of did it in secret I mean it was <laughs> it was often compared to I mean she said that the, the, the kind of the cognoscenti considered it on a par with passport p- photography I mean that's mm. how aesthetically mm. serious they took cinema so she, she you know it took years for, for her to sort of get people kind of interested people started becoming interested among the elites in Britain because the British film industry was so hopeless. Um, and she, she railed against British cinema. British cinema was incredibly conservative at that time. The best films were for her being made, and we, we look back and she was right, were being made in Germany and in America at that time. And the elites were getting a bit worried about this because they didn't really like the sort of influence that these foreigners were, might be having through their alluring films. So, yeah, she, she constantly, she, you know, she had all the things that, you, that every, art, every other art form had already worked out had to be invented from scratch. I mean, even, even the sort of basic thing like dating films. 
She's the first person to date films. You know, she was the first person to say, let's preserve these films. I mean, no one was preserved. Hollywood just was like, why would we preserve this stuff? This old stuff is junk. They, they were totally hard known. They were like, why would you want to preserve old silent films? We moved on, we're in talkies, you know? Mm. So she had to invent all these kind of things that seemed so obvious. And not just preserve, but sort of revive, you know, the idea that you'd show older films was again a kind of, anathema to the whole to society she so she was sort of dredging up old really important art, uh, films of artistic importance that might have fallen through because of you know it didn't do well at the box office so you know she had she had to start from scratch in ev- on every front with cinema one thing very interesting about her life which you bring out in her piece is her Firstly, very unconventional love life. And secondly, her social connections, you know, her relationship both with Ezra Pound and the avant-garde and the rival Bloomsbury set. Did this all give her an advantage, do you think? Completely. I mean, she was at the centre of every glamorous scene in the 20s and 30s that you can think of. She was at the centre of the the avant-garde set around Pound, the Bloomsbury set, which was the rival scene. She then became the curator at MoMA, the film department at MoMA. So she was at the centre of art, centre of Hollywood. She was literally partying with, I mean, name any famous person in the first half of the you know, 20th century in art, Calder, Chagall, Picasso, mm. everyone in film, Disney, Ch- Ch- Chaplin, Ca- Frank Capra, everyone mm. she knew and partied with. And she got great gossip. I mean, she, I, mean I love this sort of, in one of her reviews, she ends one of her columns um, saying, you know, oh, Mr. Goldwyn has come over to Europe to, to possibly do a film with Sigmund Freud. You know, she got all this kind of weird gossip that she picks up by being a uniquely a groupie of every set, even when they're rivals. Um, her live life was amazing because she, um, well, apparently slept with Ezra Pound as well as being sort of guided by him. He was her entry into the London scene because she was sort of trying to be a poet and he was sort of telling her what to do, what not to do. And then she fell in with Wyndham Lewis, who was a lover, but very on-off. And, and, you know, I mean, their relationship was just, like, terrible. You know, she had her second child and she had to wait at the doorstep when she came back with it from the hospital to wait for Wyndham Lewis to, to stop um, shagging Nancy Cunard. So, yeah, no, she had this kind of... Um, she was a sort of social climber and she was interested in these scenes. She was glamorised by all these scenes. And that didn't, you know, it helped to some extent because it helped to sort of gain access to all sorts of um, worlds and essentially it got her her job in at MoMA, which was incredibly important. I mean, she set up the film department at MoMA in New York, ran it for 15 years and essentially preserved loads of films that would have been, would have gone up in smoke in the Second World War. Mm. As well as Iris Barry, of course, um, other former film critics of The Spectator include Graham Greene and Hilary Mantel. I would two names that perhaps one would not associate so much with cinema as as with literature perhaps a bit of a surprise for some people to learn that they they, they were this magazine's film critics and uh, what what is it do you think about uh, reviewing for the spectator that might attract literary types to write about a non-literary medium god that's a good question um cinema is to some extent you know the ultimate gazamkin's work it involves every art form at you know, it has to be at sort of the highest pitch. I mean, it has to has to have the best music, the best script screenwriting. You know, some of the greatest writers have been screenwriters mm. as well as authors and novelists. And so it's understandable that people from different worlds would be attracted to 
to kind of reviewing film. I mean, that's why film is. I mean, it's it's the it's the amazing thing that within the space of Iris Barry's lifetime, at the beginning, it wasn't even considered an art form. By the end, the idea that it was an art form, the idea that it's not the greatest art form, which I would say probably it is, because it kind of the net, the way that it sort of draws in all the arts into this fusion, into this immersive fusion that is like a you know a, a, a dream that you mm. go into this kind of black space and just dream over two two hours makes it kind of the, the king of art forms and so you can see why everyone's been attracted to the idea of writing about film i mean mm. pe- people within every other arts tradition has been drawn to film what something i thought when i read your piece gore is um as you say it seems almost remarkable now that for such a long time the general public and and um academia and the critics all the publications in this country did not consider cinema to be an art form is there some kind of medium or art form nowadays that you think is terribly underappreciated and that you think that in, in years to come, people might look back and go, can you believe that The Spectator never had a, I don't know, TikTok critic, a video game critic, whatever you like? Is there, is there something like that? Yeah, I agree. And I, I'm, I'm always, I feel nervous that I maybe have been missing things, you know, that, are, <laughs> that, that, that might in the future be important. I mean, TikTok is very similar in terms of, early very very early silent film just in terms of form and the way that you know everyone looks down on it instinctively and the way that the the elites have suddenly like taken interest because everyone is watching it and it's sort of foreign owned and everyone's getting a bit like oh god you know maybe maybe stuff is being sort of um propaganda is being um you know pumped through this new medium i imagine that yeah there some whatever comes next i mean i think these early fledgling social media platforms are are going to produce something that might be considered an art form but i think at the moment tiktok videos are and memes and things like this are fascinating but i can't imagine how you'd review yeah. tiktok <laughs> but it's an interesting it's an interesting thought i mean we are starting off first i mean we're sort of slightly late on this gaming column next year i mean we were we've we've started it a few times in the past and speaking of literary people going to a non-literary medium i'm right in thinking aren't i that the that the video game critic will be the spectator's book editor sam lee it's correct i mean he's obsessed with this stuff so um yeah so we, we we've always like reviewed games every now and again but um it's always been hard to find people that can write very well who can also talk yeah. about games in a way that general public general readership will be interested so yeah uh yeah who knows i it's 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 it, you always want to be the person to to you know you always want the magazine to be sort of uncovering new things and i mean it was kind of it, you know it's amazing that the that the magazine you know i don't think anyone realizes that film criticism started the spectator basically and it's you know good on john strakey who hired her you know igor thank you very much indeed for joining me pleasure And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore, and I hope you'll join me again next week for a very special Christmas episode of The Edition. (laughs) 